Hi everyone, Dana here. Today, as we're all stuffing our faces with holiday meals and spending time with our loved ones, we're playing you one of our favorite stories from Kerning Cultures. We originally aired this in two parts, but today you'll hear them both back to back. And at the end, we check in with our main character, Faraj, to see how he's getting on a year after this original story aired. If you remember this story well, go ahead, fast forward, no hard feelings. I cannot wait for you to hear how he's doing now. Okay, here we go. I was born, raised in Sana'a, Yemen, the capital of Yemen. Thriving city, lots of traffic, lots of cars. It was a very busy scene. I come from a mixed background where mom's born, raised Vietnam. So she grew up closer to her Vietnamese route than anything. So I was brought up as a Yemeni Vietnamese, which is pretty hard to come by. Do you know any other Yemeni Vietnamese? Uh, yes, there is actually a, um, so all the Vietnamese that, Yemeni Vietnamese that migrated out of Vietnam, they were captive in a camp. They would live there and all that, but they were all like, you know, just restrained in there. After a while, the camp was taken over by military coup, they spread out, but all those families kept in touch with each other. So we do know a bunch of other Vietnamese Yemeni families. We need to back up for a second. What? <laughs> Can you tell me like in more detail? Hey everyone, this is Dana. I'm a producer at Kerning Cultures. I'll be taking over from Hiba for this episode. This story will be told in two chapters. This is chapter one. All of it begins and ends with one person, 24-year-old Faraj al-Badani, who you just heard. He is a Yemeni Vietnamese living in California. And when I first met Faraj, I thought, whoa, that's a cool mix. A Yemeni married a Vietnamese in Yemen, they had kids. Interesting, not a mix I've heard of before, but it's not insane, right? And then Faraj started talking to me about how his parents met, about this small moment in time when Vietnamese refugees fleeing communism in the 1970s were secretly sent to Yemen for safety and lived in camps in northern Yemen. And I thought, what? Few people had studied this, there was almost nothing online, And the most Yemenis could tell me about this Vietnamese community in their country was that they remember eating at a Vietnamese restaurant once upon a time in Sana'a. But about how the Vietnamese got to Yemen in the first place, who took them there, who facilitated the relocation of these families, who ran the camp that they stayed in, and under what policy? Nothing. So today, we're bringing you a story from a fleeting moment in history that so few people have heard of, or researched, all told through the lens of Faraj and his family. My name is Dana Balut, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, radio documentaries from the Middle East. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination the streets lost culture. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Well, okay, just why don't you start by explaining to me how you got into the story. This is Casey's managing producer, Alex Atak, who really held my hand through a lot of this episode. Okay, so I met um, Faraj through a mutual friend. A friend of mine uh, made a documentary about breakdancing in different parts of the world. 
And Farage was kind of featured in that documentary when he was still living in Yemen. And I went to a screening of the documentary and there I met Farage. And I remember my first impression was that he had walked to the screening from the local airport and it was a two hour walk. And I said, why didn't you just like Uber or something? And I, I remember him t like hinting that he was kind of tight on cash, but also telling me like, oh, that's nothing. I used to walk like double the distance every day in Yemen to my school. So it wasn't a big deal at all. And he just like brushed it off like it was nothing. Uh, and I remember he just like, He stayed in my mind, um, and then two years later, I uh, decided I wanted to maybe do a, explore, at least explore doing a story with him, and I thought it would be about maybe breakdancing in Yemen, uh, but then it <laughs> turned out to be nothing to do with breakdancing. The story, I guess, starts, we can start at 1975. And it actually starts far away from Yemen and starts in uh, South Vietnam. Saigon, April the 30th, 8 o'clock. The last American helicopter on the roof of the American embassy prepares to lift off the last of the evacuees fleeing before the advancing communist armies. North Vietnam was communist, South Vietnam wasn't. And in 1975, what they call the fall of Saigon is when the North Vietnamese forces ended up taking over South Vietnam uh, to become, you know, what eventually be, still is a communist government. For the first time in 20 years, the face of Ho Chi Minh was on display. The evacuation plan was a shambles. Desperate refugees walked or ran along the road. Many have already covered 200 miles in 12 agonizing days since the decision to abandon the Central Highlands without warning. So how the story goes is that there was a community in uh, South Vietnam that had uh, Yemeni blood or had they had Yemeni descendants or, or were half Yemeni in some way. And when the communists took over, feared for their lives. The American airlift only took a fraction of those who wanted to leave. And for hours after the last departure, scores of people still crowded onto the embassy roof in the vain hope of rescue. What historians have told me is that uh, these, these Yemeni, let's call them Yemeni Vietnamese, although a lot of them were just Vietnamese, but had some sort of ties uh, to Western allies, so allies of the West, allies of the U.S., Uh, and I think that's why they feared for their lives. So uh, these half-quarter, one-eighths Yemeni-Vietnamese families ended up uh, getting almost smuggled out of the country and flown to Yemen. And one of those women was Lynn, who happens to be Farage's aunt. He lives with her now in California. We we're leaving at night time, and we have to be at the office by 10 o'clock in the morning. At this point, Lynn was about 17 or 18 years old. And then I remember there was a bus, a bus that uh, take us, take on of the people who left the country, that did go to Yemen. It's a many family, not just my family, to go to the airport. So 500 families um, from South Vietnam, what was Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh, left, were, were almost smuggled out of South Vietnam. And the way Farage's aunt and, and mom kind of tell me is that they left, um, they remember leaving at 10 o'clock in the morning and they didn't tell any of their relatives. Because we afraid somebody will find out we left the country and they may, we may get arrested or something like that. That's what I remember. 
10 o'clock in the morning, they left. They didn't tell anyone else around them. Were taken to what they say was like the Yemeni consulate in Vietnam. Uh, slept there overnight, and then in the middle of the night, these two or three planes uh, were filled with these families that, like them, had some sort of Yemeni connection to them, and then were flown uh, from South Vietnam to first Thailand. When we get to Thailand, we have to sleep in the airport, Thailand airport for three or four days, I think. And then from Thailand to Pakistan, for a couple days, and then from Pakistan to Yemen, where they ended up uh, in a refugee camp in Taiz. I mean, what? so what kind of life did Faraj's mum and her sister kind of move to when they moved to Yemen? Yeah, a hard one, a very, very hard one. So Faraj's aunt, uh, as she recalls it, she says our entire family had $5 when we arrived in two change of clothes, and that's, that's it. We only allowed to have two outfits for each one of us, and that's all we have. And we have no money, nothing at all. And it is, it is very scary. So, wait, do we know... I mean, do we know, like, who arranged or enabled yeah. these flights and who was kind of running that whole thing. Yeah. So they had come under the um, I guess under the I don't want to say invitation but I will say the welcoming of the Yemeni president at the time which was President Hamdi. In particular this kind of policy of Hamdi to, to welcome refugees because in addition to welcoming people from Vietnam he also welcomed people from Ethiopia and I guess it was an overall policy to welcome these refugees um, that were seeking I guess uh, in quotations a better life. I didn't I, I don't know that it ended up being a better life. They arrived to this place, they had no idea where they were, arrived eventually to this camp and they didn't have any money and uh, didn't speak the language and had no idea um, how to act in this new country. So what happened eventually is that uh, they needed a way to make money. So Faraj's aunt, uh, who was around 17 at the time, uh, found a job. Someone had mentioned to her, one of her fellow uh, Vietnamese in the camp, had mentioned that there was a cookie factory that was accepting workers, Vietnamese workers. Not too far from my camp, maybe about three or four miles away from the camp, and they come, they uh, offer us some jobs. And that's what she did. She got a job at that cookie company for about a few months, she said. I'm the only one that can they go to work to take care of my family? So I get a job at the cookie company. Do you remember how much they used to pay you? Uh, they, not very much. I think, um, and I don't think this is hard to imagine, it's not like far-fetched for the Middle East, is that... Um, so they look different, right? They look different than other women in the country. And they were used to working. They were used to going out, working, going out alone, walking alone, um, going to get groceries, whatever. And of course, this, I, this wasn't normal for, for women in Yemen at the time. So they were catcalled. They were, people called them names, verbally, sexually harassed. 
And this kind of hardship didn't just end in the 70s. Lynn happened to meet an American and got married and went off to California. But Faraj's mom stayed in Yemen. She met Faraj's dad, a Yemeni who was born and raised in Ethiopia, but moved back to Yemen. Also a crazy story. They had three kids. And even though by then she had been in Yemen for decades, her children there was fluent in Arabic, Vietnamese, and English, ran a restaurant in Yemen, she was still different. And now, so were her kids. It was weird. It was really difficult blending in. I mean, I do blend in look-wise. This is Faraj again. But uh, what really gave it off was probably, I still remember till now, my mom didn't wear the hijab. And she dropped me off at school, which caused a lot of controversy. I had, I mean, it was, it was elementary school, middle school. People are telling me my mom's going to hell because she's not wearing the scarf for the longest of time, which, you know, and they asked why I told them she's not from here, which kind of gave out that I'm not full-bred Yemeni. That's something, they would call it wrong. I just say different. Uh, I have two siblings. I have an elder brother and elder sister. I'm the youngest of the family. Uh, my house setting was very quiet, I'd say. We weren't very loud. I mean, we, we were humorous, we would joke around playing, but we're not a very loud family. We're always calm and quiet, especially because my dad used to sleep in the afternoons. He worked night shift, so we couldn't be too loud. We lived on a dead-end road, so nobody comes in, nobody goes out from there, except people that live in the neighborhood, so we all know each other. and. My mom's the kind of person that likes to wake up early, go out, clean, help just clean in front of the house, keep the neighborhood organized, which just made the people favor because they did it too in our neighborhood. So everyone just got along. Actually, a lot of people would send their kids over. My mom tutored them, keep them in daycare, teach them English. What was your mom like? Well, my mom is the definition of a saint for me. I mean, she would house any living creature that needs housing. She would cook for whoever's hungry, help whoever she can. She'd never complain. She's a really resilient definition of a hustler, I'd say. But she had rules, and if you break the rules, I mean, it got bad. It's typical, but at least her mom should throw you with a sandal or something, chase you with a belt around the house. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic for as long as I can remember. In 2012, there was a breaking point in the family and Faraj's father took off. Around the same time, things started to get a little worrisome in Yemen. You're looking at the aftermath of a deadly attack on Yemen's defense ministry in the capital of Sana'a. Men wearing uh, army uniform have attacked uh, the gates of the uh, Yemeni Ministry of Defense. The barely reported attack in the capital city of Yemen was typical of al-Qaeda's current tactics. There is some gunfire now uh, in the background. I'm not sure if you can hear, but just as we uh, came on air, there was also continuous uh, gunfire. I remember he started getting a bit more hectic. I remember starting more explosions around. Suicide bombers started appearing everywhere. Um, I mean, it was like in your region. like. You, you can hear the explosion, your windows shatter, you hear the windows flapping around, you can hear the glass buzzing and all that, and it just progressed more and more from there on. With this in the background, it was also becoming clearer that there weren't too many promising careers for people like Faraj, who were smart, trilingual, hardworking, but also, you know, not fully Yemeni. So in 2015, Faraj's family made a decision. 
Why, why did you decide, um, Faraj told me that uh, as a family, it's like you all decided that he would be the one to go to the U.S. This is me speaking on the phone with Faraj's mom, who is still in Sana'a. Uh, wh- why him? Yes. Why not uh, Jamal or Hind? Or... I want him to be, don't feel bad, because his father left and he's very young. I want him to think about his future. It's not uh, like his sister and brother. Yeah. We because of we want to do him to become not like us, not like me or somebody else. My 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 daughter and my son say that is okay because father is not you know like another child or something. We 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 say okay, let him go. We can sacrifice for our our life, but not him. Uh, I remember my family dropping me off to the airport. We had our neighbor drive us because he had like a big bus and we could fit all the luggage inside. My mom's lecturing me on the bus ride. You better behave, be well, don't, don't make a mess at your aunt's house, don't eat all their food. My mom didn't break a tear until I walked through the scan gate. That's the only time I, like, she actually cried when they were prepping the entire thing and came out and gave her a hug and gave my other siblings a hug and then just headed out. So what happens when a family puts all their eggs into one basket? And in this case, it's in the youngest of the family, Faraj. How big of a difference is there between what you think America will be for your son and what it actually ends up being? And how does it feel to watch your country spiral into a gruesome, terrible war while your Trump-supporting neighbors hand you anti-Muslim flyers? In the second part of the story, we'll follow Faraj's new life as he navigates it in America. It's a story about what modern migration looks like for a young Arab at a time of social, economic, and political tension in the U.S. Not surprising, it's very different than the time of our parents' generation decades ago. Well, okay, so give me some background. This is Kerning Culture's producer, Alex Atak. Like how... Um, what what were the events leading up to Federer yeah. moving to the yeah. U.S.? So event number one, Ant gets married to American. So his Aunt Lynn, wonderful woman, meets Frank, uh, and they move to California. Uh, yeah, it was love at first sight. Plus, I'd been I'd been contracting for eight and a half years in the Bahamas, Saudi Arabia, and around a lot of places. I was just tired of living out of a suitcase and wanted to settle down. This is Frank, Faraj's uncle. He was a contractor at some American companies wanting to do business in the Middle East at the time and was in Yemen visiting in 1979 when he met Faraj's aunt through a mutual friend in Sana'a. And I was able to get her out on a tourist visa and get her to the States where we got married. So that's event number one. Event number two... Uh, is that Faraj does really well in school. He's a smart kid. And as the youngest, I think his mom and his two siblings kind of collectively decided that Faraj was going to be their star child. And um, uh, I guess they sacrificed to give him an opportunity that uh, they would never get. And the opportunity, of course, was the USA. I mean, definitely I wanted to come here and see things. I mean, you get the TV, it tells you everything about it. It was California that I was heading to, I mean, as planned, because my uh, aunt and uncle live here. Uh, I was really looking forward to it. It was an experience that I wanted to try out. So Fetish's mom calls her sister in California and says, 
hey, will you take my kid for a while? Um, and can he, can, he, um, can he live with you guys? You know, and if he, according to Fadaj's mom, she tells her sister, if he steps out of line, if he does anything wrong, you send him back immediately. And so Fadaj applies to like the local community college in, um, in Dixon or around Dixon, I think. And he gets accepted and he gets a student visa and off he goes. Directed my flight straight from Yemen to Jordan. And I had this seven hour layover in Jordan in Queen Alia Airport. And I didn't mind that it was a big airport. First time in my entire life I could see the airport that big. I was roaming around, I was walking. I walked around a little lot for quite a while. Next flight was Jordan to Chicago to O'Hare's International Airport. And uh, what happened is I landed in O'Hare and they, I missed my layover because they're, I mean, it's typical. They had to go through my stuff and all that. They scanned me for about two hours, told me that I missed my flight and gave me a hotel room there. So I got to stay an extra night in Chicago, which was fun. I did not know how to cross the street. I didn't know there was that button you press for the light to turn green. So I was stuck across the road. I didn't know how to get to Wendy's across the street to eat. Wait, you didn't, so you could literally see Wendy's across the street, but you didn't know that you had to push the button? Yes. So it, so it never turned green? Never turned green. And I didn't want to jaywalk. It was my first day there. It's not smart jaywalk. I didn't know what was going to happen. I just went back to the hotel and just had hotel food and slept. And then from Chicago, what happened? Um, Chicago, spent a night there. The shuttle then took me back to the airport, had my flight to San Francisco. That was when I was supposed to meet my family, and I've never met my aunt and uncle before. So it was weird, because I didn't even recognize them when I saw them. They were waving at me really hard, and I was like, who are these people waving at me? <laughs> and then I got close, and I realized it was them, and um, we went back. So my aunt and uncle decided to take me out to get some lamb, Afghani lamb. So they take me to this big restaurant. They gave me a huge tray of rice and a huge like lamb leg. And, I start eating out and I remember, I clearly remember this. I look up and my uh, aunt asked me uh, if I need a box, you can get me a box to take the food back home. And I look at her with a straight face. I'm like, why would you need a box? I ended up eating all the food and halfway through my uncle took a picture and I didn't know. He took a picture and sent it to my mom and my mom sent the picture back to me. And it was of me munching on the lamb leg. And he says, underneath caption, we can't afford him if he eats like this, take him back. <laughs> I mean, it was a joke, but um, I mean, my mom sent it back in like two minutes and she was like, you better like not eat their fridge out. And I was like, I won't, but I was just hungry. I landed in San Francisco and I thought to myself, this is the life. I mean, I, I don't mind doing this. It's a nice big city. It's diverse. It looks beautiful. And we started driving up towards Oakland. And we drive up further towards the countryside. We end up in a little tiny town called Dixon. It's a very conservative uh, city. I mean, I'm probably like the third Middle Eastern there or the fourth Middle Eastern there. I mean, there's no Middle Easterns there, barely any people of color. You can you get some looks walking out the street. You definitely feel that they're not very um, comfortable, I'd say, or just familiar with having someone of my skin tone walking around. Uh, <laughs> the cops are not. <laughs> They're not the biggest fans of me. Within my first month, I got pulled over by a cop because I was riding a bike, and he said I matched a profile for someone who just robbed Home Depot. And all I had on me was just my phone, and I was on a bike. 
I mean, like, where was I going to put the stuff that I robbed? <laughs> so um, he ended up getting my ID and everything. And I was like, oh, I guess it's not you. You just came from school. I was like, yeah. When Fetish applied for his visa to America and when he first arrived, President Barack Obama was still at the White House. But not long after that, this sea of change was taking place. Right now, a historic moment. Of Donald Trump wins the presidency. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. President Trump today retweeted anti-Muslim videos posted by the leader of a far-right extremist party in Britain. The threat posed by the Trump ban could impact on a way of life not just a specific religious group. Did Trump being president directly impact your life? Um, personally, like on a personal scale, um, not really. I mean, I, I, grew, I live in a small conservative city. It just made them more outgoing about it, which was not much of a big change. I mean, what do you mean more outgoing about it? Soon after Trump, you start having, there was some anti-Muslim rallies, some guy giving flyers out in front of Safeway where I used to work. I, I look Hispanic, so he didn't bother me. He actually asked me if I wanted the flyer, and I was like, well, no, thank you. <laughs> what did the flyer say? Um, I mean, they mostly criticized. They were like, no, um, um, ban Muslims, anti-Muslims, or something like that. And uh, I, I picked them. I picked one up eventually because he left his stand and all that, and there were papers. I was curious to see what's inside, and it was, um, it was uh, trying to say that um, Muslims invoke violence in communities, and they'll kill you and they'll attack you. Dear listeners, bear with me. I want to take a step back a bit to review. So in 2014, Faraj moved to the U.S. on a student visa because he got accepted to a community college, right? The downside of that kind of visa is that you can only work either on a college campus or if you want a job outside of college campus, there are very specific rules about doing that that would allow for it to be legal. So basically, you can't really get real work. And if you can't make money, well, that's not really an option for Fadej because he needs to pay for his university bills. But he can't pay for his university without a job. And if he can't pay for university, then you eventually lose your student visa. And without a student visa, you become unwelcome. That is true. So enough, I'm probably going to become what they call an illegal alien. Originally, my family was supposed to help me sustain financially here. Situation got a lot worse in Yemen. Most of my family members had lost their jobs back then. I couldn't afford paying my school semesters. So as the situation there got worse, Temporary Protective Status, or TPS as it's known, was designated for Yemenis living in the U.S. And this happened on September 3rd, 2015, a year after Fadej came to the U.S. That exact definition of TPS is the following. The Secretary of Homeland Security may designate a foreign country for TPS due to conditions in the country that temporarily prevent the country's nationals from returning to safety, like war or in certain circumstances where the country is unable to handle the return of its nationals adequately. So other countries under TPS, for example, are Somalia, El Salvador, Nepal, and under TPS, Fadej, a Yemeni national living in the U.S., could actually work legally. By the time I got to work, I was barely making enough to pay for the classes that I was already taking and all that. 
I started off at, my first job was a courtesy clerk at Safeway. So I was pushing carts. I did that for about three months, got promoted front end. And then a few months afterwards, I picked up my tutoring job. You're the head tutor at the tutoring center. So I coordinate all the other tutors. I do the notes, um, the tutoring material, science fairs, any science events. I've usually had them or run them. I did landscaping too. I picked that up after probably a couple of months to make extra cash here and there. So it's probably averaged out to around 60, 70 hours a week of work. How much would you make? Approximately came out to around 1500 a month, maybe a bit less. Did you have a social life? Um, throughout that period of time, no. Spending that much time working and schooling doesn't really cut you much time to socialize and meet people. So although in July 2018, the Secretary of Homeland Security announced the decision to extend TPS designation for Yemen through 2020, Fetish's status does not get renewed. And I don't know if there's any direct link to the Trump administration taking over, so I'm not going to make that link. But I'm going to say that it wouldn't be far-fetched. Because basically in 2017, his application for TPS doesn't get rejected, but it does not get renewed. Fetish calls them a couple times a year, and they've continued to just say it's pending. Usually, just for reference, in the past, it only took him a month or two to get the status renewed. So Safeway, as my TPS expired end of 2017, and the day after, my Safeway got an email from the government notifying them that, well, his employment has expired, so you guys have to let him go. And I got a two-week extended period because my boss liked me. She was like, we'll give you two more weeks. Just get as much work as you can done and just we can't do anything about it. So he is no, lo- no longer able to work legally. And so he got this letter from Safeway saying, we, sorry, we can't employ you anymore. So he lost that legal job, which created this financial crisis for him, right? Which is um, a $15,000 debt to his school. That also means that his school will no longer accept him in the next semester, uh, which means he loses his student visa. So by the end of the year, Faraj will have lost his temporary protective status and his student visa due to the debt. So it's like a it's like a cycle, right? What happens is you learn to deal with it. You learn how to cope and just exist with it. We call it numbing it out. So you have to just know that. All yet you're doing, everything that's happening. You just got to keep your goal on your mind and just move forward to it. That's all you can do. You'd rather live with pride than swallow your pride and choke on it. So at this point, Faraj is 23 years old, and he's not really sure what to do next. He's losing his legal status in America, but cannot go back to Yemen. First, we begin with a developing story out of Yemen, and suicide bombers have targeted at least two mosques in the capital, Sana'a. The United Nations is warning that if the war continues, famine could engulf Yemen in the next three months. Yemen is a country that is in meltdown. 
there's not really a word to describe that. It's, I mean, it's hard to explain. It's hard to express out. Um, it puts you in a place that you really don't want to be and seeing everything you knew, everything you grew up to being reduced to rubble, being told that your people, the population, that, that your entire country is going down to the drain. It just makes you feel powerless. It makes you feel hopeless that your home is not your home anymore. Your home is not the same place you grew up in. It's being taken away and all you can do is just watch. How does that reflect in your life here? How does that translate? Yeah, I mean, I don't even talk to my families about my hardships here and difficulties here. If I, I do owe my school a lot of money, I do go through a lot of work hours, I do go through all that, but I would never withstand being able to complain to my family. Because at the end of the day, I will be complaining about material things while they're complaining about, well, there's an airstrike next to the house. The house just shook, windows just blew, we have no food, people are getting sick, people are dying. So it gives you, you, you get the emotional strand that they're going through, but you don't get the physical one. So you, that does not give you a liberty to complain. What happens now? There's a lot up in the air now because even, I mean, even if my TPS status gets renewed, that just buys me an extra year and then it's transfer out and it's having to pay the rest. Same amount of stuff, work 60 hours a week to barely maintain what I'm affording now, not even paying off what I previously had. Even if my student visa renews for another year, that's just more debt for me just collecting up because I can't legally work. Um, so best alternative is just get out, find somewhere else. What do you mean by that? What I mean is if you have to survive rather than thrive in your community, then it's not where you're supposed to be. You're, you're supposed to be living life, not struggling to get through day by day. You mentioned the option of crossing into Canada. Is that something you're serious about? That's the most reliable plan that I have now. So this all originated when two people that I, well, the Yemenis that I know that were in the same predicament as me just packed up and just drove into Canada. And so other Yemenis that I knew, people that I grew up with, people that I went to school with started migrating one by one. And soon enough, my best friend called me and he was like, have you heard about everyone going? And I was like, yes. And he was like, you might want to consider it because I'm leaving soon. And if you want to hop on, I'll take you with me. And I was like, sounds good. And what does your family think of that? Um, there is no support of any sort from both sides. Do you have like a, a vision of your future professionally and personally? Not a single bit. There is just a big void or blank. And that's pretty much all I can see is, as far as I can see is what's going on tomorrow. I can't reach anywhere further than that. And just perceiving the next day, it's still hard enough. Every single day is what will you do tomorrow? How will you get by today? Faraj, in an ideal uh, world, what would your life look like right now? I mean, it's probably 
waking up at seven in the morning and smelling some hygiene in the kitchen. My mom would be baking. The whole house would smell like pastries. Sometimes you just go buy them from the store and just make a cup of coffee and just sit at the table with like sunlight breaking in, looking at her backyard with all the green plants. Uh, with my mom making her infamous Vietnamese food in the kitchen. Uh, on a weekend, we're all just eating at the table, just talking over each other in Vietnamese, laughing, enjoying a peaceful life. So this is one version of what modern Arab immigration to the U.S. looks like today. It's a complicated web of visas, bureaucracy, financial headaches in your new country, while simultaneously worrying about your family, your neighborhood, and your country back home. And Faraj's story, with its twists and turns, is not an extraordinary or extreme example either. All around the country, men and women are trying to make the best of the hand life has dealt them. But in Faraj's case, he found a way to go way, way beyond what anybody would expect of him. In Faraj's case, I can't help but share a little anecdote with you. Can you you explain what you're looking at right now? I'm looking at my right uh, arm. It has a huge circular bruising size of a dime, maybe, with a big red hole in the middle. It's kind of bruised up. Looks kind of yellow in the middle, which is scary but weird. Uh, It's right on the vein which they drew the blood from. End of September, uh... 2018, I meet Faraj in San Diego. I take a train down from Los Angeles. Uh, It's like a three-hour train, two-and-a-half-hour train ride down. And I meet Faraj in San Diego because he was donating um, stem cells. How it happened is I was approached three years ago on campus by a small table, two people sitting there, and they asked me if I wanted to donate bone marrow. And I just said, okay, it sounds... It sounds like a work of fiction because they also told me like my ethnicity is probably not going to match up with anything else. I'm Middle Eastern Vietnamese, so it's hard to come by someone who's like, going to narrow down to that. But I signed up for it, and about a year later, they contacted me, told me that I am a match with someone. They confirmed that I am the most suitable donor, and they began running a lot of lab tests and stuff on me. I was getting like my blood drawn every other month. And like it was a lot of like shots, blood donations, checkups, physicals here and there. They walked me through what's gonna happen. They told me like where they're gonna inject me. I was going through a lot of uh, heavy symptoms because they had to give us a drug to induce our stem cell production. So I was going through a lot of migraines, a lot of achy joints, back pains, uh, fever, nausea. I was throwing up all over the place. I looked like a mess. I was. I looked like a zombie walking in, and. Um, they just hooked me up to the bed, gave me some Tylenol, told me like after they, as soon as they draw the stem cells out of me, I'm going to feel a lot better. So I just told them, hook me up right there. Uh, and it's, it is voluntary. It's not like, I mean, and I, I, he doesn't get anything out of it, I don't think. So can you, um, I mean, when you asked him like why he did it, what, what, like, what, what did he say? Because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> it just, I mean, the way I look at it is, it's just doing what's right. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing in the world. You're supposed to be giving when you can. I mean, it's not going to harm me on long term. In fact, it's not going to have any negative terms on me. So why not give when I can? So it just feels it's like right. 
I'm just hoping it's someone that would make the best out of it. I find this event so fascinating because here is Farage, only 24 years old, new to the country, and within a couple years has found a way to quite literally and hopefully save someone's life. For free, by the way. But I find this form of giving back to a country that is hosting you particularly moving. Because no matter where you stand, religiously or spiritually, there is something quite magical about what happens next. So... Ex explain to me what's happening next. So I told you I know Farish through mutual friends, right? Um, and so after I found out about Farish's $15,000 uh, debt to his school and his plans to head up to the Canadian border and just cross it and figure out what to do, in his words, so no plan at all, basically, um, I, I reached out to our mutual friends and I told them the situation, and um, they collectively basically um, promised Farage that they would pay, they would raise money to pay, uh, pay off his debt and allow him to stay and help him get transferred to a university where he can continue his education. Actually, in addition to our friends, Farage's aunt and uncle, Frank and Lynn, are also helping him pay off his loan. And as of last week, his student visa has been renewed for another year. He's applied to over 10 schools to get transferred out of community college and enter a university to get a bachelor's degree in engineering. So that's karma for you, and a good note to end on ahead of the holiday season. We published Fetish's story, the one you just heard, in late 2018. And since publishing that story, a lot of you have messaged wondering about Fetish. What happened to his legal status, where he is these days, and did he ever find out anything about the person he donated his bone marrow to? Well, you should know that Fetish and I, of course, stayed friends after this episode, and it's been, it's been an interesting journey for him, and so much of it makes my heart swell, but also hurts my heart to see how complicated life and legal statuses can be when really in the case of Faraj, all you're doing is searching for a better life. Okay, here we go. An update on Faraj with answers to all of those questions. Hi, how are you? When I called him, he was in the car, so I apologize for the audio quality. But he spends most of his days in a car because Fetish sometimes, and at the time that I was calling him, was working for UPS, which is, if you don't know, the mailing and shipping company, kind of like FedEx, which of course means long hours on the road, and especially during the month of December and the holidays. Can you, Fetish, walk, walk me through your schedule? Um, well, I work 2 to 9 a.m., that's the first shift. It's a preloader, so we loaded up the UPS trucks. Two to nine, it usually ends up being like two to ten. And then I have a little break, like half an hour or an hour. And then I have a shift from 11 to 7. Um, and then I just sleep between that and 
then two o'clock shift. So I sleep to like one, get up, shower, clean, and head out again for another shift. Fetish, that's a lot. It's not too much. I mean, five, six hours of sleep is, is a lot. It's sufficient. Sufficient. So a lot of people that heard the episode, like, don't have no idea what your life has been like since then. So tell me, since then, what's happened? Uh, I got to graduate. I graduated with eight associates. Two of them were transfer associates, so they're kind of like doubles. Okay, and then what happened? Well, pretty much I continued working through 2019 with my tutoring job. Um, and then I got admitted into UC Riverside. I am majoring in chemical engineering. My, I'm considering doing an emphasis in either nanotechnology or bio-nanotechnology. Okay, so if you didn't fully catch that, last time we spoke with Faraj, he was at a community college in Northern California. And a community college is like a public college, usually two years, and you graduate with something called an associate's degree or maybe a certificate, but not a bachelor's degree. It's largely meant to quickly prepare people for like entry-level jobs um, and maybe a stepping stone towards a more traditional university. So Fetaj at this point had lost his temporary protective status, TPS, which we explained in the show, and therefore affected his ability to work legally. But over the past year, Fetaj, who, if you haven't already come to this conclusion, is a super special person, full of potential, and it's so clear to the people he meets. So it wasn't really that hard to get his friends to come together. They pooled their money to pay for his college fees and helped him apply to one of California's most popular universities, UC Riverside. And now, in case you're wondering, in the midst of trying to figure out his legal status, Fetaj has a GPA of close to 4.0 which is, like, really, really high. I just uh, requested a petition for an accelerated program with the university since I need to certify when I can graduate as soon as possible since my TPS expires in March and they haven't announced whether they're renewing it or not. The lawyer that I spoke to, well, um, mm-hmm. the lawyer <laughs> the lawyer recommended either asylum or marriage. <laughs> Okay, so have you been on uh, any dating apps meeting American women? No, (laughs) ma'am. I would rather stick with being fair and honest and trying to establish a life here rather than use someone. I mean, a lot of my friends have offered it. (laughs) Yeah, but I'd, I'd rather be fair and honest whatever way I go through. I really do believe if I try to take any shortcuts or anything, it's going to come back and bite me. Faraj, how's your family in Yemen? Um, my family is... They're doing well. There's not as much conflict going on in the capital anymore, so... They're a bit more free to move around. Yeah. They're good, though. But I really do miss them. It's been five years... I haven't seen them in five years. Jeez. Honestly, it's starting to take a toll. It's all right, though. As long as I get to go to school, get to live a decent life, I can't be complaining. Faraj always amazes me in the same way. How calm and mature he is about very serious feelings and challenges. And in many ways, 
Farij and I are similar in that we both left our tumultuous Arab homelands for the pursuit of a better education and opportunities. But me, I visit home every year, and I have a U.S. citizenship, so don't have any problems with legal status, but I'll still find reasons to cry from homesickness and complain, not just like alone in a bathroom, but to tons of people. And Farij, who is younger and endured a lot more than I have, is somehow so resilient in a way I deeply, deeply respect. And not just that, but he's also really generous. If you'll recall, when I first went down to San Diego to interview him, he was there because he was donating his bone marrow. And it turns out the recipient of that bone marrow survived. Oh, he actually, they actually sent me a response yesterday. They sent me an email asking me for... Um to approve releasing my information for him. He requested to contact me. They just sent me an email, a release form of my, inf- uh, approval of release of my information for him. So uh, they're gonna give him my phone number and email after the release form passes through. And somewhere between excited and audited out about it, because I don't know who it is. I don't know anything about the guy other than he's 53 years old. And if he's contacting me, that means he's okay. So I guess that's a good news. Oh my gosh, that is incredible. Yeah, so I'll get to hopefully hear from him soon. That's amazing. That's amazing. When are you heading out to Beirut? You're heading 23rd, right? Yeah, on Monday. In a few days. What do you want from Beirut? How can I get you? Coffee. Middle Eastern coffee. It's never going to be as good as Yemeni coffee, I have to tell you. I'll try, though. Okay. okay. I'll reach out when I'm back, okay? Will do. All right, then. Okay. Keep in touch. Keep me posted. Uh, but okay. And safe travels. All right. Okay. Yalla. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. This episode was produced by myself, Dana Balutz, with editorial support from Tamara Rasamni, Alex Atak, Hiba Fisher, fact-checking by Zena Duweider, and sound design by the amazing Mohamed Khreizat. We'll be back with a new Kerning Culture story in a couple of weeks in 2020, in a new decade. Happy New Year, everyone. Guess what? 2020 is going to be great. Thank you for listening. Take care.